Well, good morning, church. It is so good to see everybody here today. For any I haven't met, my name is Bill Birch. I'm one of the pastors here. I arrived this morning about 7 o'clock, and I thought, University of Georgia had a football game late last night at home, and it's raining this morning, and Methodists are hydrophobic. (laughs) And I was convinced I'd be the only one here, and I appreciate your faithfulness. I am delighted to see everybody here, both on site as well as those who are joining us online. Uh, Today, we are continuing our worship series that's entitled, Fixer Upper, Welcome Home. And it's a shameless borrowing of a title from a very familiar home renovation show starring Chip and Joanna Gaines. But it's also an apt title for our time together because after 18 months of a global pandemic, last week for the first time, we resumed our full Sunday morning schedule here at Northside, not only on-site worship, but also on-site Sunday school for children, youth, and adults. And your response was absolutely amazing. And it's a time of fresh starts and of new beginnings, but we also realize there's a lot of fixing up left to do. And so today's sermon is entitled, Construction Blueprints. During the series, we are focusing on the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And part of what I shared with you last week, if you want to understand these two stories of God's timeless power to save, you really need an overview of the entire Old Testament in one minute. And I shared that there are two incidents that shape Hebrew Scripture, Exodus and Exile. In the Exodus, Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, eventually to the Promised Land. And there, God fulfilled the covenant made with the patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel. In many ways, Israel's history reached its zenith under the rule of King David and his son Solomon. David joined the country into one nation. And Solomon built the very first temple in Jerusalem. And then things went downhill from there. Civil war over the next decades and centuries divided the people and the nation. And eventually in 587 B.C., the Babylonian army came in, defeated Judah's army, destroyed Jerusalem, and razed the temple to the ground. And the best and brightest of the Jews were exiled to Babylonian captivity. And there they languished for five decades until God inspired King Cyrus to allow some of them to come back home. And last week, we considered that first wave that was led by Zerubbabel, who for the very first thing that he did, the very first thing that he did was to rebuild the altar and to rebuild the temple. Today, we are introduced to the figure of Ezra, who arrived decades later. And our scripture lesson comes from Ezra chapter 7, beginning with verse 6. Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. 
He begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and its laws to Israel. Amen. I have been in the ordained ministry in the local church for about four decades now. And during that time, I participated in four major church construction projects, which may well explain the length and the color of my hair. But it's been an amazing, amazing journey, and it always began with God's dream that people took upon themselves as their own mission. And we would spend countless hours talking about how we could use the buildings as tools for ministry and mission for Jesus Christ. And we would consult with architects and contractors and make change upon change upon change to the plans. And I discovered very early not only the importance of really well-drawn plans, but also of making sure they were completely accurate. Because paper edits are quick and they are cheap. Change orders are slow and expensive. For example, when I was in West Point, Georgia, we built an amazing family life center, exceeded all of our expectations, but on the plans there was this tiny little square that none of us ever noticed. And it was only midway through construction we realized that tiny square was a big I-beam in the middle of the kitchen's serving line. Plans are important. And if you've got a good plan, you've got to be able to share it with others. And historically, making duplicate plans for subcontractors on a major project was time-consuming and it was expensive. Then in 1842, an Englishman named John Herschel came up with a brand new method using light-sensitive sheets that made negatives of the originals. And because it appeared as white lines on a blue background, they were called blueprints. Now, years later, we used more modern technology to make construction building plan copies, but we still call them blueprints, even though they're not blue and they're really technically not prints. But construction blueprints are important. Last week we heard the story of Zerubbabel leading the people of Israel and rebuilding the altar and the temple. Thankfully, he had two different sets of blueprints. One came from God's Word. David had designed the temple that Solomon built, and it was based on the design God gave Moses when they constructed the tabernacle in the wilderness. Secondly, when they got back to Jerusalem, even though the buildings had been destroyed, no doubt the foundations were still there, or at least the trenches. You can go over to Jerusalem today and you can see the foundation of the ancient temple that was there millennia ago. And so they began to rebuild God's temple. And Ezra arrived decades later to discover the temple rebuilt, a thriving Jewish community in Jerusalem. But he was appalled as a man of God to discover that many of the Jews were ignorant of God's law or knew it, and they were not obeying it. 
I want you to think about this for a moment. The whole driving force of Israel returning from Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem was to worship God in the temple. And what Ezra discovered then, and it's a lesson we have to relearn over and again, is that it's easy to allow outward observance to take the place of inward devotion. It's easy to go through the rote and the routine without really embracing the meaning underneath it. Consider four of the central practices and beliefs of the Jewish faith and of worship. First, there was circumcision. That was the physical sign God gave to Abraham when he formed that original covenant with Israel that all the males of Israel would be circumcised as a physical sign of their devotion to God. And yet over the years, what you see in both law and prophets is this recognition that it's not outward manifestation, but inward devotion that's important. To the point that Jeremiah could say to Israel, God wants our hearts circumcised, not our bodies Secondly, last week we talked about how the very first thing Zerubbabel did was to rebuild the altar. It was a place where the sacrifices were made for the sins of Israel. And yet the people discovered it was a lot cheaper and easier to buy an animal for a priest to sacrifice than to really seriously repent of your sin. And David who designed the original temple in Psalm 51 said to God, You don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Then there was the temple itself, this epicenter of Jewish faith. It was considered to be the very house of God, the holy of holies where God dwelt. And yet there's that familiar scene in the Gospels where the merchants and the money changers had moved in and they made the temple into a business. And Jesus was outraged and formed whips out of ropes and drove them out of the temple and said, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you made it into a den of thieves. And finally, there's Jerusalem itself. Uh, Next week, we're going to hear the amazing story of how Nehemiah leads the reconstruction of the walls and the gates around the city of David. But an interesting thing occurs as he does, and we'll get into this more detail next week. There are people who want to help. Jews who had remained in the land that said, let us help in the reconstruction of the city, and Nehemiah rejects their help. The prophets had foretold a day when all the nations of the world would come to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. And Nehemiah spent his entire ministry building walls to keep people out. And we in the church always struggle with this because it's easy to think of the church as a Noah's Ark a place where we gather together in the warmth, safety, and security of a community of faith while the storms rage outside. And certainly that is an element of what it means to be the body of Christ gathered. But we are also on a search and rescue mission. And we're called to set out into the stormy waters because there are people drowning out there who desperately need to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. 
And so we gather and we also scatter. And God help us when we build walls that keep people out of God's kingdom. As I was preparing for this series, it it struck me that the last 18 months have molded and shaped us in ways far beyond our imagination. I've got a friend of mine who likes to say in every relationship, somebody's training somebody. I'm going to let you think about that for the rest of the week. Every relationship we've got, somebody's training somebody. Now, it may go back and forth, but there's some training being done. And the global pandemic has trained us. And some of the habits that we have cultivated over the last year and a half are positive, and they are healthy. And some of them are negative, and they are unhealthy. And part of what I want to challenge us to do is to embrace new holy habits in our life. One of the elements of our DNA here at Northside is our mission statement. It's something that we have emphasized over the past five years. It it appears on all of our social media, our printed material. Oftentimes we begin worship saying it. There's a place for you at Northside Church to know the love of God, to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and to go into the world to serve others. And we believe Christian discipleship encompasses those three important disciplines and habits of to know, grow, and go that they form a blueprint for how we grow as disciples and how in turn we make disciples of Christ for others. And in our own community of faith, we understand that no means to worship God, that something happens when we gather together as the people of God in corporate worship that cannot be replicated, duplicated, simulated, or substituted in any other way. There's nothing else like it. To Grow means to grow as Christian disciples in our relationship with God through personal devotion and through small groups gathered with other Christians. And then the go, of course, is of service, of serving others in the name of Christ in ministry and in mission. And I want to challenge all of us to re-embrace those disciplines in our lives. And I'm going back to a sermon series I did three years ago when we were talking about going all in for God. And here's the model I want you to prayerfully consider for your life. Worship plus two. Worship plus two. Worship, discipleship, and mission. And consider prayerfully committing a minimum of three hours a week to each of those holy practices. To know, grow, and go to worship, discipleship, and service. And I use that word minimum Because three hours a week is pretty minimal. I did the math. There are 168 hours in a week. If you're among those blessed who actually get eight hours of sleep a night, that leaves you with 112 waking hours. Three hours out of 112, I did the math for you, is 2.675% of our waking time. It's not much. As an aside, I find it really interesting that that figure is a little bit more than what the average Methodist gives to the church on an annual basis, but that's a sermon for a whole other time. Worship plus two, what would that look like? It would mean one hour in worship. You can check that off. You're doing it right now. That is important for us to gather as God's people. And one of the things as church leaders, we're trying to hold intention 
is the recognition that for the past 18 months, online worship has been an extremely part, important part of our life together. And it's not going away. Virtual campuses are going to be a part of the church moving forward. We have members who cannot yet attend or are not able to get out of their homes or they may be out of town. We discover we're reaching people who probably will never set foot in this church because they live hundreds of miles away. And we want to emphasize and bless that ministry. But here's the tension. There's something that happens when we gather in person that you just cannot replicate. It's the difference between watching the Braves on TV and sitting behind home plate at a World Series game. It's just something important in our lives to worship together. And then to spend an hour in discipleship, certainly that includes personal devotions, but also small group activities. And for the first time in 20 years... Northside has a dedicated Sunday school hour that does not have a worship service at the same time. We think this is important for children, youth, and adults. And that decision was driven by several principles. One is we believe that we're going to be healthier as individuals in a community of faith if we are two-hour Christians on Sunday morning to have a chance to worship, and have a chance to be in a small group. Secondly, we realize with people's schedules that although we have an amazing small group ministry throughout the week, many folks cannot be involved. And there is a place here on Sunday morning for individuals and couples to be in a small group and do life together. The third part of this is we believe it's important for our older children to be in worship. Now, I'm going to take a step back here for a moment and tell you what my wife also often reminds me of. I never had to sit with children in church. And she says, it's fine for you to stand behind the pulpit and talk about the importance of children in worship. You've never sat with your son and daughter because you were up there. I get it. I do. I was that child once upon a time with my parents. Here's the burden on my heart. We have raised a generation of children who have not, for the most part, been exposed to worship. And then we act surprised when, as young adults, they don't remain in the church. Brothers and sisters, we're about raising the next generation of the kingdom of God. And if some Sunday you want to come up here and preach and I'll sit with your children, I'll be glad to do that. But we think it's important for all of us to be involved in worship and in small groups. And then the third discipline is mission. To go. To take what God has given us and to share it with others. Because we realize ultimately discipleship is not inwardly based. Although we are called to be sanctified, to grow in holiness. It's also so we can go out and share it with others. To share the good news of Jesus Christ. To do it with words. To do it with actions. To be involved in ways that are transforming our community. So often how other people get involved in a church's life is through relational evangelism. It's the people you know. There are a lot of folks that are not saved out there. There are a lot of folks out there that are not involved in church, and you know them. They're your neighbors. They're your coworkers. They're your fellow students. They are your friends. Invest yourself into them. 
Give yourself to them. Then watch for the God's moment to invite them. And then once you've invited them, get them involved. Be their midwife of faith. Invite them to a small group. Offer to sit with their children and worship. And our design is that strangers become seekers who become disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. These are the holy habits, the blueprint that enables us to grow as God's people. To know, to grow, to go, to worship, to be disciples, to serve others in the name of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that this service, something in the music, in the prayers, in God's word proclaimed, has pricked your heart. And there's some habit that is missing in your life. And the Holy Spirit is calling you to cultivate it and embrace it and to make it your own. Those are the blueprints that God has given us. And this is how we are called to build our lives. Let us pray. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the means of grace that you have given us. Ways that we can grow as God's people through worship with one another through discipleship and personal devotion and small groups, and through the ability as the body of Christ to be your hands and feet in service, I ask that you would grant us the grace to set aside those negative, unhealthy habits we have cultivated over 18 months and to embrace holy habits of change. You've given us the blueprints, the ways forward into the future. Build us and make us into the very image of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we make our prayer. Amen.